We're going to continue in worship by reading this passage in 1 Corinthians. Um, so let's read it together. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 to 25. And you'll notice that um, some of these verses we read last week, and I'll, I'll, mention, I'll talk to you about why I included this later on. Read with me. Paul speaking, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the Word of God. So we're continuing our series in the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians. And over the course of the summer, we've been trying to focus on what it means to be a church that's faithful to what God has called us to be. And I hope that little by little, we're all being shaped by what the Word of God says. This is what we sang earlier, that that God would speak to us and it would have its effect in us. So because the way a church is shaped is by all of us, the church becomes what it is when all of us together as individuals collectively, when we are shaped, whether or not we're in a position of visible influence or leadership, the church becomes what it's going to become by how we ourselves are shaped. And if you are a member of IGC, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, if you are a member of IGC, then you are responsible for the health of this church. If this church does stuff that you don't like, if, there's, if we're going off course, if we're not being faithful to what God's Word is telling us to be, then it's your responsibility to do something about it. All of us are responsible for the health of this church. And I hope that as we've been going through the Scriptures these past several weeks, we've been diligent in listening. We've been receptive, not just to learn, but to be molded and transformed by what God is saying in His Word. So, for the sake of God's glory and His church, let us listen to His Word. At last week's service in the park, we went through several of the verses that are a part of today's passage. And I'm including them this week because they build the case for what I'm going to talk about uh, today. So last week we talked about how the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. For those who do not believe, the message of the cross is foolishness. The message is so different from what we hear from scholars and experts, from those in popular media who we give our ears to, and it's so different from even what we hear from religious people. So this week, I want us to consider how our lives would look if we really believe this word of the cross. And I want us to imagine, in the life of this church, what would this, life, what would this church look like if we really took the word of the cross to heart? So... To do, that, to do that, I'm going to first talk about how we might have false assumptions of what our lives should be, the assumptions that we hold as to how we should live, and then I'm going to talk about how 
the ways in which the word of the cross is foolishness if we hold on to certain assumptions, if we have mistaken assumptions about ourselves or reality, how the word of the cross is foolishness. And finally, I want to talk about what our lives and the life of our church might look like if we believe in the word of the cross. So these are the points in your bulletin. Number one, uh, the challenge of the culture that we live in now. Number two, the word of the cross and how it's a stumbling block and folly and how this can create a new culture in our church. This is the third point. This is uh, how the word of the cross can create a new culture. So if you want to look at it really simply, I'm going to talk about what we are and what we can be because of the church. What we are and what we can be. So let's talk about what we are. So first off, let's talk about the challenge that we all have by living as Westerners, for most of us, in the Western world in the 21st century. So I'm going to start with a very simple definition of culture. Culture is an organized understanding of what, is, of what society considers normal. Culture is an organized understanding of what society considers to be normal. So there are other definitions, but this is a simple definition of culture. Now, for those of us who have spent enough time in the Bay Area, they, there are certain things that we consider normal. Uh, it's normal to see Teslas everywhere. This is not true of other parts of the country. Uh, The celebration of sexual freedom, this is big in the Bay Area. This is normal to us. Um, Avocado toast. Paying $8 for avocado toast, this is normal. If you've been to San Francisco, uh, this is normal. Bashing certain political figures is normal. Working long hours and not having free time for other people, this is normal. This is what our culture is. But there's something in today's culture that goes far deeper than these things. And it's the way in which we view ourselves. It's how we put ourselves at the center of our own lives. So a question for you. Have you ever consciously thought about why you think of yourself a certain way? Have you ever thought about why you present yourself the way you do? In the mid-20th century, the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre popularized existentialism as a way of thinking. Existentialism. Um, And this is what he writes about this way of thinking. What do we mean by saying that existence precedes essence? We mean that man, first of all, exists, encounters himself, surges up in the world, and defines himself afterwards. If man, as the existentialist, conceives himself, him is not definable, it is because, to begin with, he is nothing. He will not be anything until later, and then he will be what he makes himself. So there's a lot of words. What is Jean-Paul Sartre saying? He's saying this, that you don't have any meaning outside of yourself. He's saying that, that your essence, the most important part of who you are, this only comes about by what you do. In other words, you create your own meaning in life. Now this sounds a little bit hopeless. And this philosopher he foresaw the questions that people would have. And what he taught was this is actually a very hopeful thing. He taught that existentialism is the only way to have hope in fact. If there there is not a higher being who gives purpose and meaning to your life, he says, So that means that you are free to define your own purpose. You're free to define meaning in your life. He continues, he says, Existentialism is nothing else but an attempt to draw the full conclusion from a consistently atheistic position. 
The intention is not in the least that of plunging men into despair. And if by despair one means, as the Christians do, any attitude of unbelief, the despair of the existentialists is something different. And here he continues to talk about existentialism in, the, in light of the possibility of a God existing. This is what he says. Existentialism declares that even if God existed, that would make no difference from its point of view. Not that we believe God does exist, but we think that the real problem is not that, his, is not that of his, his existence. What man needs is to find himself again. Let me read that again. What man needs is to find himself again and to understand that nothing can save him from himself, not even a valid proof of the existence of God. In this sense, existentialism is optimistic. Again, a lot of words. Uh, Let me try to parse that for you. So, what this philosopher is saying is this. We have hope not because there is some transcendental figure outside of ourselves who gives meaning to our life, but we have hope specifically because there is no God, at least not God in the biblical sense, at least not a God who is personally involved in our life. And therefore, because there is no God, we are all free to be anything that we want to be. We are self-made creatures. We are the sole author of our story. We can be a self-made man or woman. If you think about it, this is exactly what we hear from our culture. You can be whatever you want to be. You can create whatever identity for yourself that you want. You can define who you are. You are powerful. You are beautiful. Look on your Instagram feed. And this is what we hear over and over again in our movies, in our books, in what we see online. Have you guys ever heard the phrase, you do you? Or be true to yourself. Guess what this is? This is existentialism. Did you know that? We don't realize what we hear, what we the way we think is shaped by ideas that from guys we may not even know about. Do you remember what Batman says in the Dark Knight movie? What's his special phrase? I'm not gonna do the voice, but this is what he says. (laughs) It's not who I am underneath but what I do that defines me. It's not what I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. Or consider the songs you hear on the radio. So I went to billboard.com. I looked up the top 40 songs on the charts this week to see what people are listening to right now. Um, A couple of the songs that we're hearing on our radios this very moment. High Hopes by Panic at the Disco. Mama said, fulfill the prophecy Be something greater. Go make a legacy. Manifest destiny. Back in the days, we wanted everything. Mama said, burn your biographies. Rewrite your history. Light up your wildest dreams. What is being said in this song? That it's up to me to make something of myself. Rewrite the biography. Or, for those of you that like Post Malone and his face tattoos... The song, Wow, hundred bands in my pocket, it's on me, hundred deep when I roll like the army. He's talking about hundred dollar bills, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it's a moment when I show up, this is, he's talking about showing up at the club. I got him saying, wow, wow, wow. Your grandmama probably know me. It's a moment when I show up, I got him saying, wow. 
Now, if you've heard the song, watch the video, um, you might get the sense that Post Malone is really into himself. And people celebrate this. Do you hear the self-congratulations he heaps upon himself? He says, I've made something of myself. Now people, when they see me, they go, wow, wow, wow. Or if we're not into music, maybe you're into sports. Megan Rapinoe, captain of the U.S. women's soccer team. This is what she tweeted after they won the World Cup a few weeks ago. Ain't really tripped on the credits. I just paid all of my dues. I just respected the game. Now my name, all in the news. This is a track by the rapper Nipsey Hussle. I just respected the game. Now my name, all in the news. Or for those who are into reading, the, top, the second top-selling book on Amazon in 2008 after Michelle Obama's biography is called Girl, Wash Your Face by Rachel Hollis. And this is a quote from the book. Listen to Rachel Hollis. You and only you are ultimately responsible for who you become and how happy you are. Something else she writes, I recognized a great truth. If I wanted a better life than the one I'd been born into, it was up to me to create it. This is existentialism. And do you know what's funny? Is Girl, Wash Your Face is marketed as a Christian book. This, is the t- this type of thinking is in our church, in the church, the Western church at least. Do you hear the words of celebration of self in these people. These are the cultural waters that we swim in. And we wouldn't even know that there's another way to think unless someone were to pull us up and shake us up and say, there's another way to think. So some questions for us in this church. Where do we fit into this cultural moment? What assumptions do we hold about ourselves? If we think that we're the main character in our story if we think that we can create meaning for ourselves, if we think that we are in control of our own destiny, then perhaps we're not so different from everyone else. And in light of what Paul is writing in this passage, for anyone who assumes this type of thinking, the word of the cross has to be foolish. Because our culture, it celebrates empowerment and strength and self and the potential of self. And this is poisonous. This poisons the way that we think about God. Because in the cross that God puts before us, we hear something completely contrary to what we hear in our culture. And this leads us to our second point, how the word of the cross is a stumbling block and how it's folly. So how is the message of the cross foolish? The word of the cross is foolishness and it's a stumbling block because it tells us we're not going to get what we want. Verse 22, for the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. So the first group of people, Paul says, these are the Jews. They demand a sign. And Paul is referring to the Jews during the ministry of Jesus who are, they're interested in Jesus insofar as he can do something for them. As, as, much, as long as he's able to demonstrate his power to perform his miracles, then they're interested. They ask Jesus to do, perform miracles. And this is a way of testing Jesus to see if he would meet their demands. Now, looking at the background of the Jews, they're tired of the Roman oppression. And what they want is a Messiah with power and with might. They wanted someone who could lead them to win the battle against their oppressors by force. They looked at Jesus and they said, If this Messiah is powerful, then I will follow him. If then... 
Now, this is not relegated to the Jews in the first century. This is us as well. Today, this looks like the religious who go to God with their demands for a certain type of lifestyle. People who say they'll submit to God as long as God will serve them. As long as God fits into their life, they will follow God. If God answers my prayer, if God heals me, if God gives me the life that I want, if God fill in the blank, then I will trust Him. And this is how we demand a sign from God as well, isn't it? We demand that He do something for us. So these are the Jews, and then there are the Greeks that Paul mentions. I mentioned last week that the Corinthians, they idolized the knowledgeable. They, they, they idolized those who could define a system, a worldview that would make sense of the world. And what they wanted was a structure of thought that would allow them to understand reality and to give them an explanation for what they saw in life. So if they're not like the Jews, if they're not looking for a God who, who will serve their desires, then maybe they can find a God replacement to serve their intellectual desires. They want a belief or a system of thought that accounts for all the variables of the natural world, one that makes logical sense, one that allows them to live without doubt. In this type of thinking, there is no room for mystery or enigma. Any other type of thinking is just backwards superstition. Think scientism or naturalism or humanistic secularism. This removes all mention of the supernatural. Or if you want to look at it from a religious perspective, it looks like this. We say to God, if you are who you say you are, then show yourself to me in a way that makes sense to me, according to my sense of justice, according to my priorities, according to my sense of fairness. If you are God, then do that for me. As we look at this passage, we see that the Jews and the Greeks, they're not alone. In verse 23, Paul tells us that the Gentiles, the Gentiles seek these things. That's you and me. Anyone who is not a Jew is a Gentile. To us who seek a God who caters to our desires and grants us safety and peace, the word of the cross is a stumbling block to us. The word stumbling we see in this passage, it's the, word, it's a, the Greek word is scandalon, which is where we get the word scandal. If you really pay attention to the message of the cross, it should, it should scandalize you. It should upset you and offend you because it's not going to give you what you want. And to those of us who want logic, who, who are looking for an airtight system of thought that gives us the certainty that we crave, the word of the cross is also going to be foolishness to you. Our, our first point was that we're self-centered and self-referential. That's why people sing the songs they do. We want empowerment. We want to be affirmed of our inherent strength and value. But the word of the cross says that we have no power to become who we're supposed to be. We don't have enough goodness or willpower. In biblical language, we're utterly sinful. This is what the Bible tells us. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. Our hearts are deceitful above all Things. You and I are slaves to sin, if not for the work of the cross. Now go ahead and put that on bright lettering on Instagram and see how popular that is compared to other things you see. We want a thought system or worldview that accords with the, the values of our time, that allows us to maintain intellectual respectability. 
But the word of the cross, Paul says, it's not going to give that to you. Because this is what the word of the cross says. It says, the hero of the story is not you. The hero of the story is God who stepped out of eternity into time and became a man and walked the same earth that we are on right now. It says that Jesus gave up all his privileges. He gave up his status. He came from the worst zip code. Jesus went through puberty. He had bad breath and B.O. He spent most of his time with the losers of his day. He was homeless. He was sentenced to death. He did not open his mouth when he was condemned, even though he was completely innocent. It says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter as he made his way to the cross. The cross is an instrument of torture and shame and death that was reserved for the worst of criminals. And the word of the cross says, because of your guilt, the hero of the story, Jesus, he suffered and died in your place. The creator of the entire universe did this for his creation. The way that Jesus exercised his power was by laying down his power. This is God who did this. So let us not romanticize the cross The idea of God dying on the cross for his ungrateful creation, this is absurd. This is pathetic. This is foolish. Is it not when you compare it to what we hear from our culture? And yet this is how God works. He doesn't act according to our human conventions. He doesn't bow to our expectations. He will not be limited by our logic and our reason. The word of the cross forces us to reconsider whether or not we really are self-sufficient, whether, we're really, whether we really can find meaning apart from a creator. And the word of the cross says that truth is not found in philosophy or wisdom. The word of the cross says that truth is a person, the man Jesus Christ. So in other words, the message of the cross will always be out of step with any culture that's created by human beings. The author Graham Tomlin says this of the way that God works. God still works in and through what is to conventional human understanding, weak, powerless, and apparently irrational, rather than through what is strong, powerful, and reasonable. In the light of the cross, human power counts for nothing before God. To the Jews, to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, to us, the word of the cross is nonsensical. But Paul writes of a third group. He says, these are the called, verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you're familiar with the way that God works in the Bible, what does he do? He, he's always choosing the really weird people. He's choosing the, the, the weak, the tepid, the ugly, uh, the, the second stringers, the mediocre, the self-doubting. These are the people that God chooses to do his will. And if you believe in the message of Christ crucified. When God says that you are called, this has to be such a humbling thing. Because when God says, looks at you, and he's, when he says that you are called, do you know what he's saying? He's saying that I see nothing impressive in you. I don't see strength. I don't see potential. I don't see willpower. God didn't call us because he saw in us maybe a good spokesperson for the Christian faith. Not because we might make the Christian community look good. 
But God chose us simply out of His love and His strange, strange wisdom. This is why God calls His people. Uh, This is something that I've thought about a lot. Have you ever wondered why churches are filled with weirdos and awkward people? (laughs) Have you ever wondered that? I've wondered that myself. And... It's, it's, it's because God loves them. It's because something in, the, in God's power is shown in their lives that can't be shown through the really confident, the really powerful, articulate people. The heart of God is always for the weak and the humble and those who are willing to be humiliated. The word of the cross tells us about the heart of God. Now, if this is what God is like, and if the message of Christ crucified is true then the church that wants to faithfully preach and teach and live it out must be different. And how can we be different? I, I spoke earlier, earlier about how we just live in this culture that tells us to make ourselves, to become a better person, to exercise your free will, exercise your, your, your strength and your, your smarts, create something, make something of yourself. And what does the cross say? The cross says, I'm going to break you down completely. I'm going to strip all vestiges of self-righteousness and strength and confidence. I'm going to break you down and I will kill you. Why? To make you a new creation. Who's going to make you? It's not going to be you. It's God, your creator. And what does he say? Behold, I'm making a new creation. If you are called, it's not up to you to write your story. God, in His love, is writing your story. He's making you something new. This is what allows us to become different. This is what allows us as a church to create a new culture. There's a scene in the, King, in the show King of the Hill where the father Hank, if you guys know the show, um, He's concerned about the bad influences of his teenage son, the, the bad influences that his son, uh, his teenage son Bobby is around. So he gets his son involved in a church youth group. Um, and this is, you know, for a while it seems to be going well. And um, there's, the thing about this youth group is it, it's at this really like cool hip church. Um, and it's led by, a, it's, the pastor is a guy who also is the lead singer of a rock and roll band. So Christian singer, uh, pastor in a Christian rock band. So Hank realizes that being a part of the youth group, it's been doing his son some good, but he's, he notices that his son is becoming just kind of weird, and uh, it's it, not in the good sense. So his, his, his father, Hank, he finds his son at a Christian music festival, and he takes him away, and as they're walking away, the pastor who is coming off the stage, he's holding an electric guitar, he confronts him, and he tells Hank, you know, what are you doing? Like, he's enjoying this Christian music. And uh, he says, this is how we testify of our faith. He plays a power chord on his guitar, his electric guitar, and he screeches, praise him! (laughs) And Hank says to him, he sees how funny and weird it, it looks. That Here's this pastor trying to be cool. And this is what he says, can't you see you're not making Christianity better? You're just making rock and roll worse. <laughs> and uh, I agree. Caleb is not one of the presets on my radio station. If it is, just on yours. No, I'm not knocking you. My, it's on my wife's uh, <laughs> preset. Um, 
But I think that this is such a valid critique of what we see in the Western church. We try to make the message more appealing. We try to make what we're saying fit into this culture. But don't you know that the cross and the word of the cross will never fit into our culture? The word of the cross goes against our natural understanding of reality. As long as we want power, as long as we want to live in a, in a reality that prizes self-realization and self-assertion and self-celebration, we'll never understand the cross. Do you understand that the cross is a symbol of suffering and shame and death? And as a church, can we think of the cross and embrace it and all that it represents? Martin Luther says that there are two types of theologians. There is a theologian, and a theologian is just anyone who has thoughts about God. So we are all theologians. We all think about God or the concept of God, even if we don't believe that God exists. So this is what he says. He says that everyone is a theologian, and in his commentary on this text, this is what Martin Luther writes. That person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. So here we have two types of theologians. A theologian of glory and a theologian of the cross. These are two completely different ways of thinking about God. And Luther says that the theologian of the cross thinks of God this way. God achieves his intended purposes by doing the exact opposite of that which humans might expect. The supreme example of this is the cross itself. God triumphs over sin and evil by allowing sin and evil to triumph, apparently, over him. His real strength is demonstrated through apparent weakness. This is the way a theologian of the cross thinks about God. Now, to this person, the theologian of the cross, he or she will accept that life is sometimes or very often unfair, that they have to live with unfulfilled desires, perhaps, for their entire life. They accept that faithfulness to Jesus sometimes looks like defeat more than victory. They accept that we worship an invisible God who works in invisible ways, often in ways that we cannot comprehend. Why? Because God is found in suffering. He's found in pain and in death. In other words, God is found at the cross of Christ. Are you a theologian of the cross? And then there is the theologian of glory. Luther continues, The opposite to this was the theologian of glory. In simple terms, the theologian of glory assumes that there is a basic continuity between the way of the world between the way the world is and the way that God is. If strength is demonstrated through raw power on earth, then God's strength must be the same, only extended to infinity. To such a theologian, the cross is simply foolishness, a piece of nonsense. Is a cross nonsense to us? This is our default way of thinking. We'll obey God if it makes sense to us. We'll follow God and worship Him as long as we're having our needs and our desires fulfilled. 
But if things don't go my way, we put God on trial. God, how can you be so unfair? Why am I suffering? Why is my life filled with disappointment and loss rather than fulfillment? This is the way a theologian of glory thinks. And what kind of theologian are you? So the question I have for us as a church is this. IGC, will we be a church that's centered on the cross? Or will we be an organization that cares more about fitting into this world or our culture? Will we risk rejection? Will we be okay with being insulted and being out out of step with our culture? Are we willing to be considered fools? Our passage ends with these words, verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If we're going to say anything worth listening to, it has to be the foolishness of God. It has to be the gospel. This is what we want to do every single week. We want to speak the gospel because the word of the cross is not actually foolish. The word of the cross is life. It's what we need to hear over and over and over every Sunday, every day. And if we want to see the power of God, we need to rely on the power, the weakness of God. Because the power of God is not actually weakness. God's power is a subversive power that changes people not by rhetoric or by force or by compulsion or by philosophy. God's power is a humble love that cannot be contained, that cannot be controlled. And as we continue on in 1 Corinthians, I'll continue to talk about this. I don't know if our church will ever be a cool church, and we should be okay with that. I don't know if our church will ever be acceptable in the eyes of our surrounding culture. Do you know that we've received letters from people in this community that says, because this church teaches the Bible, I don't want them here in our community? We've received those letters. I've received messages on Facebook from people saying, we don't want you here. Are you guys okay with that? If we were to lose our tax-exempt status, would you guys be okay with that? I hope you are, because we are to be countercultural. Let us become a church that goes against the grain. We have, I don't know how many years or decades, and then glory, and then glory. But for now, let us be a people of the cross. Will you pray with me? Father God, I... I, We thank you for the foolishness of the cross because it humbles us. It says that our smarts, our power are nothing to you. But God, may we be considered fools for the gospel and may this change us. May this change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.